Years ago, the king of England stopped by for an overnight rest at a hotel. He did so incognito, or at least he thought. But the next morning, when he was getting ready to leave, word got out that he was there, and everyone stopped work. They went to the hallways looking for him. They came down to the concourse waiting for his arrival and his departure. Everywhere throughout that hotel, they were looking for the king, but he snuck out a back entrance, walked through the garden, went out to a field where he was going to catch his coach and be gone. As he was going through the field, he saw one woman working. He stopped and said, Madam, where's your boss? Where are your co-workers? Not knowing that he was the king, she said, Oh, they're looking for the king. He looked down at her, took from his pocket a gold coin with his own stamp on it, gave it to her, and said, Woman, you have seen the king because you stayed at work. Tell every other person you saw the king. And with that, he left. And when I heard that story, I thought, you know, that's a lot like Christians in the 21st century who get caught up with the idea of the coming of the king and forget to work until the king comes. Prophecy conferences are very popular in North America. People will travel over miles, spending all kinds of money on books and notebooks, learning charts, knowing things that God has never revealed, being confident of what's going to happen right down to the minute point, debating hotly about those points. And yet many of those people who are enamored with prophecy live quiet, desperate lives of defeat. Marriage is broken. Lives not victorious. And there's a lot in the rest of the Bible they've hardly ever studied. I think there's something wrong about that. I think there's a misemphasis there. I don't think that's what the Lord intended at all. In fact, I think prophecy was given to us for two major reasons. Now, there are others, but two major reasons. One, to encourage us. And number two, to make us holy. We can be encouraged that the word of God is true because of fulfilled prophecy, but prophecy was given to encourage us in the midst of persecution. And in light of what is going to happen to change the way we live today. That's why we have prophecy. What we need to remember is that Peter wrote his two letters to individuals who are being persecuted. I, I don't think American Christians can imagine what it is to live a persecuted life. Oh, we go to school and someone may laugh at us because of our faith. You go to work and someone again will cajole with you because you say you're a Christian. You'll be mocked. And we go home to our beautiful homes and our nice cars and our wonderful meals and fine clothing and mope about how we're so persecuted. Or maybe we'll go to our cottage for the weekend and just get a little renewal, you know, because we've been persecuted back at work. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a nice home or even a cottage. I'm saying, I don't think we know what it is to live a persecuted life. Well, the people Peter was writing to, they were driven from their homes, and they weren't probably that much to begin with. 
living in a foreign country, not knowing where their food was going to come from. Their lives were on the line. Health care? <laughs> they had no doctors to go to. And Peter writes to them and says, listen, I know you're under persecution. I know that there are mockers, scoffers who ridicule you. I know you're discouraged, but please remember this. The day of the Lord will come. And that prophecy caused them to look up from above this world of persecution and wickedness to heaven. To look up to the one who one day will part the heavens and come down. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And you'll notice in verse 3, Peter said, First of all, you need to understand that when the last days come, so will the scoffers. Don't be surprised by this. And they will say, verse 4, Where is this coming he promised? For since the beginning of creation, everything has gone on as it has. Nothing has changed. There's this philosophy of uniformity. There has never been a time where God has interrupted the history of man, where he has intervened in a powerful and miraculous way. You have to remember, Peter said in chapter 1, that the Lord is going to come back again with great power. And they're saying, there's never been... In the history of, of the Lord, any intervention. Since the beginning of creation. But Peter said in verse 5, they are willfully ignorant of something. They deliberately forget that long ago, by the word of God, the heavens existed. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these same waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. They forget that God did intervene, the flood. Verse 7, And by that same word that created the heavens and sent the flood, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So you have to understand that, first of all, the scoffers are wrong in their philosophy. They don't understand history. They don't understand what God has done and the teaching of Scripture. Secondly, you need to remember that God's timing is different from ours. When he says he's going to come and the coming is soon, remember that one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord's above time. He's not limited by time. And verse 9 says, he's not slow in keeping his promise. You say, where is this promise about his coming? He must be slow. Maybe he changed his mind. Maybe he's forgotten. Maybe he just doesn't have the ability to pull it off. No, no, that's not the reason. He's not tardy. The reason why God is slow and patient is because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to repent and come to a knowledge of his son. If you jump down uh, to verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's waiting or patience means salvation. 
That's why he's waiting. So that more and more people will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That's why he hasn't come back. Because there are still people who need to trust him. But, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. Mark it down. Now, in true apostolic fashion, Peter does what Paul usually does when he preaches. He gives an explanation of biblical truth. He reveals some truth and explains what it means, and then he tells us how it ought to impact our lives. So let's look at the explanation of the day of the Lord. It's given to us rather clearly in verse 10. First of all, we read that the day of the Lord will certainly come. The Lord will come, most definitely. He will come without question. His word is his bond. As he intervened in the flood before, so he will intervene again in the day of judgment. The same word that created the heavens and sent the flood is holding back judgment until the day. Understand this, that God has promised a day of judgment. If you go back to the prophet Joel, you don't need to turn there, but Joel chapter 1 and verse 15, we read these words, and I can almost envision Joel gasping, sighing as he says, Alas, for that day. For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come like destruction from the Almighty. And you've got books, many of the minor prophets dealing with this theme, the day of the Lord, like the book of Joel, the book of Zechariah. The major prophet Isaiah says much about the coming of the day of, of the Lord. It is most certain. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let his word be true and every scoffer dishonest. Let the scoffers mock. God will vindicate his truth. I think you need to be convinced that this is true. I mean, you need to come under the knowledge and the force of this truth. One of the problems of those of us who say we believe the Bible is that we're willing to give mental assent and agreement to teaching, but the teaching doesn't always grab hold of our hearts. And I think that's when revival takes place, when the teaching of Scripture we say we believe grabs hold of our hearts. The Lord will come, most certainly. Secondly, he says in verse 10 that this coming is going to be unexpectedly, for the day of the Lord will come but it will be like a thief. That is, it's going to come suddenly without warning. And of course, a thief comes for destruction, just like the day of the Lord. There's more to the day of the Lord than just destruction, but as we read back in verse 7, that's what's going to happen. It's a day of judgment, a day of fire, a day of destruction for everyone who rejects the Lord. Unexpectedly, Jesus, when he was teaching in his great sermon about the last times, Matthew chapter 24, 
Because he was preaching on the Mount of Olives, they call it the Olivet Discourse. And he said this, if the owner of the house knew what hour the thief was coming to break into the house, he wouldn't let him do it. He'd bring in reinforcements, right? He'd make sure the alarm was on. He'd be there with his gun. His family would be there armed as well. The thief wouldn't have a chance if you knew when the thief was coming. But you don't know when he's coming. And then Jesus said this, So also is the coming of the Son of Man. Be ready, for he will come at an hour when you don't expect him. Both Peter and Paul picked up on this. And they used it in their sermons as well. They preached the same truth. We read about Peter's statement. Here's Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, just like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. So there's this unexpected, sudden, sudden appearing and coming of Christ in the day of judgment. Now, we're going to say more about that because the suddenness and unexpectedness of the day of the Lord shouldn't surprise us. We're believers. Our perspective should be a little bit different. But the world is going to be shocked. I think there will come a time when some world leader will be able to create a noticeable peace in the world. Maybe similar to the old Pax Romana when Rome ruled and everything seemed to be at peace under its control. That's before the kingdom unraveled. I think someone will be able to put together some kind of peace treaty between the Palestinians and, and Israel, the Jews. I think someone will be able to quiet Russia and somehow neutralize North Korea and somehow bring together those Arab nations that many of which, not all the people, but some with a militant posture are bent on destroying those who oppose. I think someone is going to bring a relative peace to all of this, and people will cry out, peace and safety have finally arrived, and that's the day. That's the time period that will be perfect for the sudden coming of the Lord. One final thing that Peter mentions the day of the Lord is going to be violent. This is also verse 10. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will melt or be destroyed or dissolved by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be either laid bare or totally burned up. I say either one because there is some discussion here as to what the exact Greek word should be. And so there are two different opinions among Bible believers. There's a debate as to whether the end of the world means annihilation for the heavens and the earth or merely renovation and recreation. Whether it's total new heavens and a new earth or it is a remaking after purification of what we have. And it's a difficult debate, frankly. 
I think on the side of annihilation, you've got, of course, the translation, everything will be burned up in verse 10, and also verse 11, since everything will be destroyed. It seems to imply that everything will be dissolved, and God will completely start over new. But on the other side of the equation, people like the scholars of the ESV study Bible say it seems like what Paul says in Romans 8, that this world is groaning to be released into the glorious freedom of the children of God. It seems more like renovation of what exists. And the Old Testament prophets seem to back that up too. But the bottom line is, whichever it is, there is going to be a radical change. There is going to be a total change, and it's going to be a violent change. Like Joel said, the day of the Lord will come like destruction from the Almighty. What does Peter say in verse 7? The day of judgment and destruction. Destruction by fire. What does verse 10 say? The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Isaiah predicted some of this. If you go back to Isaiah, again, you don't need to turn there, but Isaiah 34, verse 4. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved, and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the tree. The stars, he says in Isaiah 13, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. And the rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Wow. You see, the wrath of God is being stored up like water behind a dam. And on the day of the Lord, the dam breaks. And the wrath of God is unleashed. What a day that will be. It says here that the elements will be destroyed by fire. Some think that this refers to atomic energy. That maybe what's going to happen in the day of the Lord is that the one who holds all things, in him all things consist... Scientists don't know what holds the neutrons and the electrons together, the protons. They, they don't know, but they know that when you split those things, you've got atomic energy, right? Imagine if the day of the Lord is the Lord releasing all of the atoms and allowing all of that power to be unleashed. Talk about a roar. And everything will be destroyed by fire. Or things will be laid open, as it says in the NIV, things will be open and bare. That is, they will be exposed to the judgment of God. God promised he'd never destroy the earth again with a flood, but he has said he will destroy it by fire. And that's an explanation of the day of the Lord. You say, when, when is it going to happen? I want to know the exact hour. And I would say to you, I think in my study of Scripture, I believe the Lord's going to gather his own people first, and there'll be a time of tribulation on the earth, and then the second coming, the day of the Lord will come. But Peter doesn't get into all the details. He just says it's coming, and this is what it's going to be like. And then 
he says, here are the implications. This is apostolic preaching. If this is true, then this is how you ought to live. Look at verse 11. Peter says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, the way I just described, what kind of people ought you to be? How then shall we live? That's the question. It was in 1976 that Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, How Then Shall We Live? And he described the decline of Western civilization and the reasons for it and said the only answer is to get back to the revealed truth of God and submit ourselves to this book. That's the only way we can live with any sense of victory and peace. The implications are clear. Since this is true, we ought to live, and Peter mentions three of them, Number one, we ought to live godly, holy, and godly lives. That's verse 11. We need to be set apart, godly life. And we need to imitate the Lord in all of his characteristics and his virtue. If you want to think of holiness and godliness together, like two circles that overlap, where they overlap, you've got these definitions being quite similar. They are synonyms. Holiness and godliness. But there's a bit of a difference. Think of holiness as being set apart. Holiness means not to get involved in that which is corrupt. To be removed. To eliminate what is wicked. On the other hand, godliness has the idea of virtuous life. We define godliness in chapter 1 as adding to your faith those seven virtues. That's what godliness is. If holiness is eliminating corruption, then godliness is imitating Christ. Where we begin to act like God. In other words, the only way you and I can respond in the midst of this world is to commit ourselves without reservation to the truth of Scripture and following this book, loving Christ with all of our heart, having him Lord of our life and living as he would live. Letting the Spirit of God produce in the child of God the fruit of the Spirit which gives glory to God. The life of the Son of God replicated in our life. The transitory nature of this material universe and the certainty of God's coming judgment compel us to live godly lives. I know a person has come under the power of the teaching of the second coming when they began to live a pure and holy life. That's it. Uh, John put it this way. He said, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And that's exactly who we are. But it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know this. When he appears, we'll be like him. For we'll see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope, the appearing of Christ, everyone who has this hope in themselves purifies themselves. Purifies their life. This this knowledge of what is going to happen has a redeeming, purifying, transforming effect. 
on your attitude, and on your conduct. Look at verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. That's holiness. And to be at peace with God. That's godliness. He says, secondly, we should be eager. We should live eagerly anticipating this day. Very interesting verse, verse 12. As you look forward to the day of God. In the NIV, that phrase is repeated three times. Look forward. It's found in verse 12, found in verse 13, found in verse 14. Look forward. What happens when you look forward to something? There's this sense of eager anticipation, right? You're excited about it. Imagine a child looking forward to Christmas. Or a lover looking forward to the return of their loved one, the one they've been separated from for months. There is eager anticipation. That's why we call the second coming of Christ the blessed hope. And that's why Paul said there's a reward for all of those who love his appearing. 2 Timothy 4. Do you love the appearing of Jesus? Are you eagerly looking forward to it? Horatius Bonar, a good and godly saint of a gener few generations gone past, used to end every day by looking through his curtains at night and saying, perhaps tonight he'd close the curtains and then go to sleep. And when he'd wake up in the morning, he'd open up the curtains and say, perhaps today. And he lived his life. And even rested at night under this wonderful truth that Jesus is coming again. Oh, it put steel into his heart and joy into his soul. There was eagerness there. A joyless Christian, a joyless follower of Jesus, that's an oxymoron. You want to know why the world is not attracted to Christianity? Martin Lloyd-Jones had a great answer. Because we are such pitiful Christians. That is, we look pitiful. We're defeated and downcast and discouraged and always under it. And the world, I think, quickly assesses our lack of joy and says, if that's what Christ does, I just do not have it. Are you eagerly looking forward to his coming? If you are being persecuted and there was nothing of encouragement in this world, if you could look up to the promise, the day of the Lord will come, you would be excited. It's a time of vindication and judgment, but it's also a time of renovation and renewal. And that's why we have the last response. We should live optimistically. That's verse 13. Be optimistic. The scripture tells us, but in keeping with his promise that he would come, he also said he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. Now we get this from the book of Isaiah, chapter 65. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure, so my people will endure, the prophet said. How encouraging is that? Optimistic living. Excited, filled with joy. Positive about the future. 
That's not to deny that bad things are going to happen. That's not to deny that there's corruption in this world. That's not to deny that scoffers abound. It is to look above it all and see King Jesus about ready to return. And that will give you some optimism. R.A. Torrey, the first president of the Moody Bible Institute, said this. When I learned the teaching of the second coming from Scripture, it transformed my whole idea of life. It broke the power of the world and its ambition over me and filled my life with the most radiant optimism, even under the most discouraging circumstances. Radiant optimism in the midst of a discouraging world. Why? Because verse 13 says he's going to make all things new. We are new creatures in Christ. God has made a new man out of the two, the Jew and the Gentile. All things will be made new. I like the smell of a new car, don't you? Say, I've never smelled it before. Go to a dealership. Pretend like you're going to buy one and sit in one for a while. Drive one. There's just something neat about a new car. Imagine the smell of heaven. Everything is perfect and new. And I love what it says in verse 13. It's a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Where righteousness has a home. Where righteousness is comfortable. In this world, righteousness is not at home. Wickedness is. And if you stand up for what is righteous, you'll be out of place. You'll be talked down, ridiculed. But in that day, righteousness will be at home. Everything will be based on the principle of God's righteous rule. What a glorious, glorious time that will be. James Denny used to say that the bloom and beauty of apostolic Christianity was created by the upward look. In the midst of depressing times, they kept looking up and they were made victorious. It was during World War II that a dear Christian went to New York City's Grand Central Station he went there to say goodbye to some soldiers who were going off to war and at the station saw one of his good friends. He asked him, what are you doing here? And the man said, my son is coming home from war. He'd been in the European theater and fighting was tough there, but I got word that he's coming home. He's actually in the States and I'm here to greet him. Oh, he's coming home today, the man said. The father responded, well, I'm not sure. I know he's in the States, and I know he's coming from the West. I know that the train from the West arrives here at 10.30 p.m. at night, and so I'm here to greet him. And if he doesn't come tonight, I'll be here tomorrow night at 10.30 p.m. to greet him. And if he doesn't come that night, I'll be here every night until my son comes home. <laughs> the Christian walked away from that encounter and said, that man just preached a sermon to me. I know Jesus is coming, but I haven't the expectation I should. I'm not looking up 
to that time of vindication and that time of revelation and that time of renovation when all things are new and Jesus rules over the world in righteousness. It's when those persecuted are vindicated and the righteous name of God restored. He said, but I've got to start living every day in light of his soon return. And what will that do for you? It'll purify your life. It will make you eager for every new day. And you will be excited about living for Jesus Christ. A radiant optimism. May God give that to us as we look up for his soon return. Let's pray. Lord, we understand that the purpose of prophecy is not speculation, it's motivation. The purpose of prophecy is encouragement and holy living. We're told in the book of the Revelation that Jesus wins. And all the filth and corruption, the wars and the battles, the times of struggle and times of victory will be all consumed when he returns. Lord, we look forward to that day. Make it a bright spot in every day's calendar. Lord, make it the, the rising of the sun on every new day that we encounter. May it fill our hearts with radiant, glorious enthusiasm to live for you. To pray that your kingdom would come and so hasten it. To win others to Jesus Christ and so speed up your return. And Lord, be so eager to be reunited with the one who died in our place. That our thoughts, although they may stray, will quickly return to the one who said, I am coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.